you recently sent me a video of a informational meeting at the Mob Museum in Las Vegas involving several people. And Edie Amin was one of those participants. And I didn't watch the whole video, but I was very curious as to what Edie Amin was going to have to say because early on he was the subject matter that there was a lot of up and down. And Idi Amin said exactly the same thing he said 25, 26 years ago. And basically what he said the same thing in Compton. You know, whatever was on the story in the newspaper, sometimes I wonder if that was really him or that was coached. That's just, that's just my opinion because I just don't, any personal contact I had with him, his story stayed the same. His story was the same at the Mob Museum interview. What I thought was interesting that one of the other participants seemed to be trying to nudge him along to say something that he wasn't, he didn't see. That just, that's just how I interpreted it. And I'll give him credit that he stuck to his gun. Vilified, deified. It's hard to find anyone apathetic about rapper and actor Tupac Shakur. By the time of his passing, September 13, 1996, he had sold millions of records. In death, the prolific musical artist would sell millions more. Twenty-five years ago, it was clear to me how influential Tupac was, and I went in hard in reporting the case as a correspondent and producer on a primetime crime show. I was the first to secure the video of the now infamous beatdown at the MGM Grand, the first to get a hold of the search warrant affidavit detailing gang warfare that erupted after Tupac was shot. Another first was securing interviews with the original Las Vegas Metro investigators. 25 years later, once again, an exclusive. I interview now-retired homicide detective Brent Becker. Nothing is off the table. Oh, and if you've heard any of Tupac's songs, you've heard some of the language lightly sprinkled throughout this podcast, Enough Said. Lana Nozizwe way reporting. Tupac's murder was his case. Questions, part two. I did drop the mic near the end of 2021 after I thought I'd recorded the last episode of Lenin Way reporting Tupac's murder was his case. I mean, there is a reason my podcast featuring retired Las Vegas Metro homicide detective Brent Becker was called a limited series. The main reason I'm picking back up the microphone is because of your additional questions. Brent was kind enough to say he'd be willing to answer them. My plan was to post this episode long before this. Maybe I can make it up to you with this episode and a bonus episode, which will be dropping soon. And by way of explanation for the delay, I've had some assignments that have kept me incredibly occupied, and other matters have stretched me to capacity. 
My upcoming calendar is even more jammed with many good things, by the way. So I figured if I don't post now, it will never happen. So there she blows. And again, the focus of this new episode will be your new questions. But there is something else I'd like to address, or if you prefer, gather. And let me underscore that most of you, dear listeners, have seen and heard the podcast for what it was intended to be, a freewheeling conversation with Brent Becker. No topic was off limits, and the format, well, really no time constraints, and that gave me an opportunity to dig into everything. At one time, I was a local TV news reporter and had to produce two news stories every day, unless I was producing a special That lasted maybe five minutes. The news stories were like 90 seconds. I was also an on-camera correspondent and producer for that primetime crime show, and that meant stories were seven minutes or so at the most. Along the way, I've also hosted and produced recorded and live programming for broadcast. All of that's different from a podcast when you can really go as long as you like. I went into the podcast well aware of all the beefs, especially among content creators, and my goal was to be Switzerland. I did not expect everyone to agree with the contents of the podcast. In fact, I said frequently, I expected that there were going to be listeners who thought I was too hard against police, or that I went too easy, and here on the other side, I'll tell you I've heard both, which I see as a good thing. Going into the podcast, I also expected a certain content creator to purloin my content because that's what this individual does. What I did not expect was the libelous and defamatory utterances from three people, all men, two in particular. If you stay for the tea, which I will be serving up later, I will address the fabulous and the slandermonger, who I identify as individual one and number two. The two with suburban, thirsty, thug life tattooed on their bellies. Okay, you know, I have to find some humor in all this. If you think, as a black woman, I've not faced this sort of thing in the past, well, I'm here to tell you, this ain't my first rodeo. I really learned to deal with individual one and number two in middle school when first dealing with mean girls. My mother has always said, let the dogs bark, meaning if someone says something bad about you, ignore it. And the truth is that people who really like you won't believe it, not for a second. That's certainly true in this case. I very much appreciate listeners who came to me feeling bad about the barking dogs, and they actually wanted to protect me. Please understand that as a journalist who's produced thousands of stories over the years, I don't expect everyone to like or agree with any story. And when it comes to critics, I always listen carefully to see if there are facts that I missed. If there's something that can carry the story forward, I'm all ears. Slander and libel, that's just about ego, not so much. 
And if I were just to let the fabulous and the slander monger go without saying anything, then it's like it's okay. And it's very much not. It reminds me of a political climate when folks can just make up things and speak in very coarse ways instead of focusing on the facts. It's a, a, a type of deflection. That's what I've encountered. And I really do understand if you don't want to listen to the podcast because it's not your cup of tea. I get it. That's not what I'm talking about. To quote Tupac, I ain't mad at you. There are more than two million other podcasts out there. Have at it. Beyond asking Brent very specifically about one of the lies, I will save most of the discussion about this for the end of this podcast episode. Enough said. For now, anyway. And apologies for not listening, Amai, about that dog thing. One of the reasons I'm not listening to my beloved mother is to serve as a warning. When it comes to any story, especially any story that you see about Tupac, always consider the source. Any source, even me, even Brent. And even those who tell you it's their way or the highway. Frankly, that's one thing about Brent Becker that I very much appreciated. He says he's speaking from his recollection. He does not say his way or the highway. He did not take home case files, work product. Tupac does not represent a cottage industry to him. And he's never been accused of falsifying an affidavit. Facts. I guess I should just let Brent Beckers speak for himself. Welcome back, and thank you for agreeing to do part two of our questions episode. You're welcome. Welcome back, and thank you for the reprise, but it's what the listeners wanted. They've been listening from around the world, and people have continued to ask me questions, so I appreciate you coming back. You're welcome. And we will get to the questions, and we'll get to some food, what I call foolishness, sort of the dogs barking, but first... I would like to get your thoughts about the passing of Tim Brennan, former Compton Police Department uh, gang, the gang unit, and also former Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. Well, you're the one that gave me the information since I'm not really up on everything. Uh, 
one, I was very sad to hear about it because really he's a young man. Uh, I know he put in a lot of hard time, you know, he's a very knowledgeable gang detective. Uh, he was critical in our case as far as our identifying Orlando Anderson. And I know he did some other things as far as their affidavit and such. So I haven't heard what was the cause of death. I just heard that he passed. And it's, it really sucks, especially with the time of year. And it's just, you know, my condolences to his wife and kids and close friends because it's just, just a tragic thing. Yeah, I'm sure it was something, although I hope it was something that was unexpected. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, the family can carry on as best they can. And I would like to, to join you in uh, sending condolences to the family. And he was very much a pivotal figure in this case in that he helped you identify Orlando Anderson. Right. And so you, you met him at least a couple of times, once yeah. in Las Vegas and also in Compton. Yeah, we had, you know, I I know our contact wasn't, was fairly brief when you think of it, but there was, there was no negativity to it, so. And he was pivotal. Oh, yeah, he certainly was. And the other preamble is about uh, area of discussion that my mother always says, let the dogs bark. In other words, don't respond when people diss you, say bad things about you. But because this dog and actually one other dog, they're kind of rabid. So I do feel like I'm going to have to address it. <laughs> and I'm going to call one person, individual one. And he has stated that I went to him to try to get in contact with you, and apparently he told me, no, I'm not going to help you. Do I know person number <laughs> one by chance? Individual number one is, is how I'm going to okay. Do, have uh, I identify met, him. Have I met this person before? Okay. I believe so. All right. Okay, and so. I, I never had even heard of him until a few months ago, and I... Well, I'll just say I never, I never heard of him. So it, my jaw dropped when I heard that I had contacted him in order to reach you. Now I'll ask you, I've known you 25 years. Would I have needed to go to anybody to contact you? No, actually, uh, I, and I will say my phone number's changed since we first met, but you had the updated number when it came out. Uh, since, since... The American America's Most Wanted episode, because our contact was more or less then. But after that, everything was done via email or phone calls. And in so fact, we, I know that you would at times contact me or forward information like your vibe story or something like that. Because I interviewed you for it. Yeah. You know, we were in touch yearly. I mean, maybe some years, not as much. The contact, as far as this particular case, probably ended a long time ago. But then it came up again this past year because of this podcast. podcast. Most of the time it was 
we were in touch. You were kind of updating me on projects you were doing. And, you know, yeah, right. it's been off, ongoing for since 96. So whether you were with Las Vegas Metro or I was with America's Most Wanted or I was not with America's Most Wanted or interviewing you for Vibe, whether you were retired, we've been in touch. So I must say that my jaw dropped when I heard this individual one say that I'd gone to him. When, as I said, I didn't even know him and I'd never heard of him. And it, it's really puzzling just over this little podcast to say these things, but I, I think I did mention in the podcast that I'd never had any other show before do what this sh show did back when I originally did the story and that a, a competing show came and said, don't do her and so and so that had never happened. And this had never happened. And what's surprising to me or what's concerning to me is that People believe the content coming from this individual one, and I know directly that what has been said about me is a falsehood, period. Hmm. Another thing I'm you know, more concerned about, in a sense, is this individual saying that I've used some of his material, and the thing is, I work in nonfiction, so... It would be not something that I would do. So anyway, as I said, I said, let the dogs bark. The yeah. other issue is race in that a dear listener said, I have seen some people talking about your podcast saying your only goal is to try to implicate LVMPD as racist. And that's your only agenda in doing this podcast. First of all, I want to say that all the contact that I've had with LVMPD, and I've done stories other than Tupac over the years, everyone has been nothing but kind and helpful to me. I've never experienced anything negative. I remember meeting that Sergeant Keaton, too. Keaton? Okay, yeah, Bill Keaton, yeah. He, he was trying to get me to do a story that I tried to do. Um, I remember Lieutenant Spinoza, I remember Sergeant Manning, of course, Mike Franks. I can't think of anything that was done negatively toward me at any time. In fact, only positive things. So I'm not sure why my agenda would be to say, spout negativity about LVMPD. But yeah. this is a, a report so I'm not going to, when I hear peop, other people saying things, I am going to ask you about them. Some things that I had not heard about when I initially did the story. In fact, my perception is since I originally did the story, race came into it much more over the years than from when I originally did the story. I mean, it was an issue. I know we talked about you and the interaction that the night of the shooting. Yeah, well. And, but we really didn't get into race, racial implications then. But as a woman of color, I think it's impossible not to discuss or not think of the role 
race plays in law enforcement. Am I saying that you are responsible for, for that? No, but historically it exists. Well, so, I think maybe to call it nip it in the bud or whatever, I, I knew in over the course of the podcast, the subject was going to come up. I didn't take it as a personal attack on me. It was just something that was brought up to address. So be it. Was I comfortable about it? No. I mean, I'd be a liar to say I was. Who, who likes being accused or having to address the subject matter? But it, it happened. I will say that early on in the investigation and over the course of time when I was involved with it, you'd hear off and on things about how race was part of the investigation and it was hindering the investigation or they were dragging their feet because of it or whatever. That was never the case, but it's just something, unfortunately, you have to live with. It was, this wasn't the first case. It certainly wasn't the last case where it ever came up. Uh, as far as when I left homicide and over the years when I was out of touch with it, well, since we've done the podcast, I've learned a lot. And I've just thought, well, again, people are going to have these thoughts and what can you do about it? Well, all I can do is say, I can give you my opinion or my thoughts on it. Whether you want to believe it or not, that's your business. I don't really care. I can, I'm, just, I'm just telling you how I looked at it. Simple as and, that. And that's all I asked for. And what's really puzzling to me as well with this individual one is, I'm wondering if he ever listened to any of Tupac's songs. Well, yeah, I, I know early on, again, I didn't know the guy when it started, but I did. I got to hear bits and pieces, and I thought, wow. It's just he addressed race, you know, and well, maybe this individual one, and, and policing, that was like a theme throughout his life. And I'm wondering if this individual one might have done better to create content about Pat Boone. But wait, Pat Boone was very active in the civil rights movement, and he wrote a song an homage to George Floyd. So anyway, I digress. And as I said, I'm going to get back to this topic a bit, but not, not, not when we have this opportunity to ask you questions, but I just wanted to make it clear that when I'm asking you questions about race, it's questions versus a show that this individual one was on in which the host and another commentator flat out said that you all at LVMPD didn't solve the case because of race. That was a statement. In the podcast, I'm asking questions about it. So I wonder how individual one hasn't said anything about that, maybe because he was on the show. But anyway, I think you'd be happy if we moved on at this point. Okay. <laughs> You're saying yes? <laughs> yeah, let's go. <laughs> All right. Well, the first question comes from somebody who's identifying himself as Tupac Shakur Jr. He says, I'm the son of Lassane Shakur. My internal question, will you help me find my father and killer? 
Well, well I'll say I, I yeah, wasn't aware well, that he had a son. Help, help find your father. That would be Tupac. Yeah, well, am I to take the believe that he's still alive? Is that how that's meant? Because my, th I can tell you, when I saw saw him, he was dead. Simple as that. Uh, you know, I know that there's all kinds of stories out about him still being alive. Well, I'm here to tell you that I've never seen or heard of a human being surviving an autopsy. So, and that this was the gentleman I saw at the hospital that was autopsied. And though I wasn't present, I would think that his brother and sister, half-brother and sister, whatever, could confirm all the stuff about the mother of Feeney Shakur cremating him. Simple as that. Uh, as far as the killer, I think the, the killer's identified, uh, but identifying and proving in a sense that you can prove it in court is a different story. So, and interesting, everybody keeps talking about the guy who did the shooting. And there so are more questions on that to come. Okay, well then we'll just wait for those questions because I've got a broader view of everything involving just being focused on one individual. But Well, people, listeners also have a broader view. Okay, interestingly well, good. Enough. I'd be curious to see what comes out. But for me, this question was, I wasn't aware that Tupac had a son. Well, did you I'd, ever find any? I had, I had never heard that. I know he'd had different relations. And he was knew, married. Yeah, I knew he'd had a wife at one time. But my understanding was he wasn't married when he was killed. And I don't remember anybody discussing about children. But Lassane, he said Lassane Shakur, but it was Lassane Crooks, correct? That was his. That was the name for Tupac name Shakur, yeah. Before the, his mother changed it very, very early yeah. on. Yeah. Okay, next question comes from Dorian. And this is a question we have discussed, but it'd be great to take your take. How is it that his entourage didn't run those shooters down? Well, they're the ones you really gotta ask that to. Because I know there's been a lot of talk about people chasing him down and shooting at him and all that. It just depends on who you want to believe on this. But if people chased these guys in this car, how far did they chase them is my first question. Can anybody tell me that? Because from the point of the shooting to the point where they claim to have dumped the car is no more than a mile. So to me, that's a pretty short pursuit, especially when you're talking about automobiles. It doesn't take long to travel a mile and they, they weren't doing five miles an hour when they did it. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of questions about that subject matter. So, but as far as, whether they did or didn't, 
Well, you've got two different sides of the story, so I guess it's up to everybody else to decide which one they want to believe. And in terms of that, somebody else who I'll call individual number two, I'll just call him number two, he's consistently said that there was fire after the initial shooting. Right. And, I mean, he... He, I've heard word on the street, and again, this is another roof, roof. He said that you're you haven't you're misinformed, and he's called he's questioned my intelligence, but it was it was a listener question specifically about whether that there was a shooting. We did really go into that very deeply earlier in the podcast, but I just wondered if there was anything else you'd like to. Uh, no, I mean, I, I've heard the story before. And again, my, my question is, if in fact it happened, you're talking less than a mile. So what, they go 20 feet and stop? I, I don't know. And then I guess my response to the individual is that you're misinformed. I says, so am I going to get crucified if I tell them that maybe they're misinformed? Maybe their information is bad. Because it's, well, e- it's pretty easy to go back and forth like that. I says, you know, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, again, here to change their mind. If that's what they want to believe or, you know, the sky's falling and everything's happening, so be it. Well, this individual has been very critical of... I think just about everybody, again, another content creator, but has been very critical of even this individual number one, critical of Compton, critical of, I mean, I probably should be flattered that I've even been mentioned by him Yeah, my little podcast. (laughs) Maybe. So I guess... What is the basis of this person's information? Case files. Case files? Well, whose case files? (laughs) That's going to be the first question. From Las Vegas and from L.A. uh, Well, and the whole L.A. thing is a different subject that I guess we'll address later, maybe. I don't know. We've kind of addressed it before, so... Okay, but as I said, we, we and we've addressed the car thing quite yes. at length, actually. But Actually, we have. Just bring it up. Next question. Becker's thoughts about Tupac shooting, and, and we've talked about this a bit, too, shooting two off-duty drunk police officers beating a black guy in an ATL in Atlanta with a gun they stole from the evidence room of their local police station. So, and and Tupac getting off the case. We talked a bit about this as well before, but any other thoughts about it? I remember we talked about it and, you know, again, I don't have any firsthand information on it, but the information that I've heard that you've passed on, it says there's definitely a lot of question marks about what went on at that scene. All right. Right. And if... If, in fact, it happened the way 
it's detailed. And I'm not saying it did or it didn't. I don't know. I wasn't there. I'm just going on the information. You know, if it happened that way, <laughs> sounds like things were kind of brushed under the rug, so to speak. Uh, well, Tupac was freed, so, I mean, yeah, he didn't do yeah, any time. So. That, the, that tells you from, a lot from my, in the South. From my perspective, if someone shoots at a policeman and is freed, it raises a question as to what and, happened. And dare I say, especially in the South. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna. Not, I'm, 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 not gonna, gonna say, go, I'm not going to go into regional, cultural, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Right. I'm just saying. Dare, dare I say? <clears throat> I'd like to know Becker's thoughts on Yafu Fula, Yaki Gaddafi being killed not quite two months after Tupac's death. Does he find it suspicious, considering that Yaki was the only person that night who said he might be able to identify the shooter in the police lineup? And again, it was the driver, not the shooter. Just for yeah, it was the driver. He never said that about. In fact, no one has ever said they could identify the shooter. Uh, I just say again, but he did say he thought he could identify the driver. He never said absolute, but he thought he could. I'll tell you that when we got word that he had been killed, absolutely there was questions because we were going through the whole back and forth with death row trying to get to talk to him and show him some pictures. And then when he sh ends up getting killed, yeah, that's going through our mind. But I can tell you that we contacted, were in contact with the uh, agency back there that investigated that. And I know that there were the up and down stories, and I don't think they were from the police. They were talk on the street as was one, his killing was an accident. But I can tell you from what I remember of the police investigation that there was certainly not an accident as to what And someone did time for it. Yeah. And by the police investigation, it was in no way related to our event in Las Vegas. It's, I mean, it's real easy to, especially the conspiracy theorists, to say that, yeah, this is what happened. But guess what? In this world of ours, strange things happen sometimes. This question came via Twitter from D, uh, DT, I'll say. In your opinion, mm -hmm. after Tupac was shot and then took a deep breath to say F you to Chris Carroll, was that the last time that Tupac was conscious? And just stopping it there, you know Chris Carroll? Yes. And I, I, were do, you, I do know Chris Carroll, yes. And were you aware at the time that Tupac had said that? No, uh, that that comment was something new to me, you know. Uh, I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying it was new to me. Okay. And it, there is no, I'll tell you that it, there's no relevance to what happened. I mean, if he'd have said so-and-so did it, that'd be in a different story, a dying declaration or whatever. But, <clears throat> you know, and something about dying declarations, you know, I understand the concept, but in homicide, this was, I'd have to go through my case log, but normally I didn't go to a murder scene 
and the victim was alive, the victim was dead, so there's not going to be a dying declaration from the person. Uh, this was an unusual case in that we were sent out on a shooting that it was an attempted murder. It was an attempted murder. No one had come out right away saying that he was going to die immediately. I mean, after the fact, when I get there and learn of his injuries, I'm thinking, this is a pretty serious injury. I says, but, you know, medicine can be a wonderful thing, too. So, But in this case, they weren't able to help him. And I want to continue because this question does go on, but since you mentioned dying declaration and one of the things that we did talk about earlier was, and Chris Carroll says that he was there listening for a dying declaration and he says this is what Tupac said. Also, we, we talked about three people going in the ambulance to the hospital. Okay. And I've heard of dying declarations. I mean, you can watch an episode of Law and Order and be familiar sure. with that concept. In fact, I just saw one a, a, a couple of weeks ago. But my question earlier when we talked about this was, how is it that three people would be there in the ambulance for a dying declaration, especially when somebody was in such critical condition? It just seemed, you know, I was like, is that normal? in terms of law enforcement being three people being in an ambulance for a, for a dying declaration. I mean, people have ridden, law enforcement have ridden in ambulances, whatever, when a person's transported. And again, for a dying declaration, certainly. Three? Says, well, three is, seems a little excessive. I, I don't know. I wasn't there. Again, it's kind of hard for me to sit here and, I'm not going to be critical of people because I'm not there. I don't know what happened, what was going on. Uh, but had you, you ever heard be, of it before? Do you need three people in the one? An ambulance is not known to be a very roomy vehicle. I mean, I, they've got a big box back there, but that's because they've got a lot of equipment and stuff, and they do certain things. And you figure if there's three officers, the victim and the paramedic, it's it's going to be a little tight back there, but I've never heard of three officers. I'm trying to recall. I might have heard of two officers riding with someone before. Yeah, that wouldn't have even been a question. If there were two, I wouldn't have even asked. But, you know, again, I don't know what was going on, what the circumstances were, so I'm not going to sit here and say anything negative about it. Uh, As far as from my perspective as the homicide investigator, I mean, okay, but the fact is, I guess there was no dying declaration because it was never conveyed to me that there was. Because if there was, we'd have obviously had a different response in our investigation. Uh, and again, it's very, very, very unusual for me to get called out to a homicide and the victim's alive because we're called to a homicide. Guess what? That means someone's dead. So, Well, digging deeper into this question, it continues. Tupac's stepbrother, Mopreem, says that Tupac was trying to tell him something in in his hospital bed, but he couldn't make out what he was saying. Death Row R&B artist Danny Boy says he sang Tupac's favorite song to him, A Change Is Gonna Come, by Sam Cooke, and Tupac shed a tear. Kadada Jones, Tupac's fiancé, claims that when she told him 
Do you know we all love you? They locked eyes and he responded with a nod. Supposedly, Tupac was placed into a medically induced coma because he kept trying to get out of his hospital bed and kept convulsing. Convulsing. What this listener wants to know, and we might have talked about it a good bit before, but what did you know in terms of Tupac being conscious? I knew that he had been conscious from the scene where, where the car ended up. And I thought he was conscious most of the ride. He may have been unconscious in and out. I know that at some point he had some consciousness at the hospital, but anytime I was there, he was, he was sedated. Because he was seriously injured. There is, I mean, I'm not a doctor, but I've seen a lot of people you know, trauma, you know, victims of trauma of some sort. And he, his body took a severe traumatic attack. I mean, it was quite evident. And it was, to me, the pain would have had to have been horrendous. So, uh, you know, in the medical profession, you'd have to talk to a doctor, but I don't think it's unusual for them to keep them sedated because of that. But did they ever tell you that he was conscious at any point? Well, just in the beginning, you know. But in the hospital. Yeah, at the hospital, I knew he'd been, but that there was nothing said or expressed related to the investigation. I, there, to what extent? I knew, I knew family had been there. Right. You know. But, but to what extent was there communication? Oh, I didn't ever hear anybody saying he was having a regular conversation with anybody. It was just he was conscious. Well, you and I know, I'm sure most people know, you can be conscious laying there, have your eyes open, you can't speak. You can, you know, receive communication from people. You know what they're saying. You may not be able to verbalize them, but, you know, I've looked at people and you could tell by their face they're there's something there. going on, they just can't verbalize it. Just to put a button on that, in terms of his consciousness, you know of no really back and forth, you know of no... Not that I know of. And the hospital would have told you? Well, I was in there and I talked, I talked to medical staff. And the information I got was that he was never... Conscious to have what, what you would say an educated conversation or whatever or, or a meaning con meaningful conversation. I mean, it was the guy was in a lot of pain when he got there. This question came in. May you ask Brent Becker why Malcolm Idi Amin changed his story when he said he could identify the driver or shooter when he was brought by Reggie Wright to. Las Vegas for an interview. Wasn't that Compton? Yeah, that was actually in Compton. Why did he change his mind? Well, I guess... In what way are they saying he changed his mind? I guess that's my best way to answer the question. I, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not going to read this listener's mind, but I think it has to do with them going to the LA Times... 
<clears throat> oh, okay. I got you. Here's here's Brent Becker's view that's, on this. That's what they because asked. They said, ask Brent Becker. Now, this is, this is Brent Becker's view. Since I interviewed, I'll call him Edie Amin because that seems to be the name he uses today, but Malcolm Greenidge is how I knew him. Uh, I interviewed him the night of the shooting, and he could not identify anybody that night other than the black, the black arms, you know. Uh, I know that later on in the investigation, these newspaper stories started coming out where he said he could identify. And I remember we, I thought, well, that to me, it didn't make any sense, but okay, he says he does, so we need to get a hold of him and talk to him because people do have revelations and see things or and then remember something. But once we got to Compton and Edie Amin said he had nothing different basically to say or add to his original statement. Brent Becker's view of the whole thing is, is this whole thing had been orchestrated by probably someone in death row, specifically in my mind, because he was there with Reggie Wright Jr. Because he's the one that arranged this meeting in Compton I don't know who arranged the newspaper interviews. You'd have to talk to them. But I have, I have an idea that was just my that. view. Yeah, that's just my view. And you recently sent me a video of a informational meeting at the Mob Museum in Las Vegas involving several yes. people. And Edie Amin was one of those participants. And I didn't watch the whole video, but I was very curious as to what Edie Amin was going to have to say because early on he was the subject matter that there was a lot of up and down. And Edie Amin said exactly the same thing he said 25, 26 years ago. And basically what he said, the same thing in Compton, you know, whatever was on the story in the newspaper. Sometimes I wonder if that was really him or that was coached. That's just, that's just my opinion because I just don't, any personal contact I had with him, his story stayed the same. His story was the same at the mob museum interview. What I thought was interesting that one of the other participants seemed to be trying to nudge him along to say something that he wasn't, he didn't see. That just, that's just how I interpreted it. And I'll give him credit that he stuck to his guns. He just said it. He said exactly the same thing he said that And night. he also said... Very much the same on the A&E special series about Tupac as well. Yeah, I I know there's a lot of to do about our meeting with Edie Amin and Compton and the hostility and all that jazz. Okay, you, you can run with it any way you want. The fact is, 
Idi Amin was a hands-on witness the night of the shooting, and his story has been consistent from that night. End of story. And I... I don't know what else. I don't know what else to and say. And I will say thank you to Tupac Facts. They're the ones who sent me that link to this to the story that to the to the oh, okay. um, the event at the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. So I I found it quite fascinating to hear from the participants. And speaking of which, Tupac Facts does have a question one of a couple of questions about the gun, which I had said during the podcast earlier in an earlier episode that I found very baffling. So this question for Tupac from Tupac Facts, which thank you. They also uh, helped put out a call for more questions for our podcast. Hey, I have a question for Beth Becker if possible. Apparently former Compton detective, Tim Brennan, who we spoke about earlier, was going through a bunch of guns. Compton PD had an evidence property when he came across a, a Glock 40 caliber, same gun used in Tupac's murder. Apparently the gun was found in a yard a few houses away from where Orlando Anderson lived. And that's not my understanding, but, but it was related to Orlando. So Brennan takes the gun to the sheriff's lab for testing and it comes back as a murder weapon. Brennan then contacts Las Vegas PD to let them know. Las Vegas PD then gets possession of the gun and tests it in their own lab and came to the conclusion that it's not their murder weapon. That's according to former Compton PD officer Frederick Reynolds via this interview he did. And that's the link that you were talking about, the Mob Museum. So I know part of this happened... I mean, apparently, again, not totally understanding the story or comprehending some aspects of it, but the gun was found during your watch, but Tim Brennan studying it came afterwards. And one of the things that puzzled me is that the gun would just be hanging around for all those years and then suddenly come up about 10 years later. Here's... Here's what I understand from the information that's been put out, okay? So I'll, I'll just go from when I was involved and then we'll go through this whole thing because I did see that part of that thing at the Mob Museum too. And I, again, it is very strange to me. So my understanding, and I'll go about this from when I was involved till when I learned later about this other stuff about the gun being processed and stuff. My understanding of the firearm in question is that it was found in 1998, shortly after Orlando Anderson was murdered. That's the way I understand it. Me. It was in a backyard. Now, whose backyard has been subject of different variations of the story. In fact, I heard a different one on the Mob Museum story yeah, thing. So I thought, well, that's interesting. So this is another story. Just what we need or what they need for this is another version of what happened. But anyhow, this handgun was found in the backyard of somebody's house. 
in Compton after Orlando Anderson was murdered. I can tell you in 1998, I was still assigned to homicide and this was my case. I was never told that that handgun was found. And I stayed in homicide till December of 2001. And no time from the finding of that gun till I left in December of 2001 was I told anything about that firearm. Period. End of story. Because if it was, you can bet your ass I'd have been uh, jumping on that to see what's up. Well, it didn't happen. So now my understanding of the continuation of this story is that maybe, well, the murder happened in 96, but I thought the didn't they find the gun in like 2006 or was it 2000? Uh, I believe 2006. So some, okay, so sometime it's actually dr- eight years. Yeah, it's actually, because I know they were saying 10 years after. Yeah, I can well, look it up. 10 years after the, sh- yeah, well, it's not that critical. It's just 10 years after the murder, but I think it was eight years after the gun being found that this firearm had been sitting in an evidence vault for eight years. That's the part I didn't understand because. So my first my first question is, why? And when I say why, I says why did it sit there for eight years in a California firearms evidence vault, if it was so important? And and it was because I know we had Glock 40s flash. That's what I'm talking about. And I'm thinking that California and, did. Now, I can't speak for every law enforcement agency in California. Can, I don't know Can how I just stop work. you there? Define flagged. Sure. Well, it's, we would flag an item. We would flag an individual. Say we had someone who was a person of interest on a case that disappeared. We would flag them in what we had was scope. It was like your computer-generated information on a person so if they were stopped out in the field say an officer stopped him on a traffic stop they run his name well there's going to be a line on there contact detective becker in homicide if you find this person or if the person is booked into jail there's going to be the line and they're going to contact me to say this guy you have him flagged that you want to talk to them because I've done that before. They've I've flagged things, and I go down and look at the the item, or I go if the guy's out on the street, I'll go and it's someone I need to talk to. I'll go out to where they're stopped, or if they're in custody in the county jail, I or the city jail, whichever, I'll run down there and so talk to them. So it's the equivalent of a bolo, but for a human or a gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, same idea. It's the same same idea. Be on the lookout. Well, in this case, that's what we did. I thought California did those kind of things. So anyhow, that gun is sitting in the evidence locker for eight years, and good for Tim Brennan in the sense that whatever his job was in the sheriff's office, he was going through all this stuff. Probably through a oh, list, which it's my understanding, it was because he was on that group that was looking into Biggie's murder that it popped. It, it was related oh, to that. Okay, and that's 
Well, and that's several years after the fact, too, because that happened in 96, or 97, excuse me. So, but, but it's just, to me, unusual that the gun sat there unnoticed for that length of time in California. Without, without being flagged. Yeah, and now, now the gun is found. It's apparently tested there in California. I haven't... I know I don't have privy to all these reports. I'd be curious to see the forensic report on the examination of this pistol in California this, this or Nevada. In California, well, first of all, in California, I'd just like to see it because I've heard people talk about it, but I've didn't. I haven't heard anybody present the document yet. Okay, so I'd just be curious to see how the report was written. Now, as far as, and that was 2006. Well, I'm out of homicide five years, so I had nothing to do with anything then. So I didn't even know about Tim Brennan finding this pistol and doing his thing. I didn't learn anything about that till recently. So apparently this firearm was examined in California and it came back as a positive hit is what I understand. Not a similarity hit because that happens you get similarities there's uh there are uh similar characteristics of an item to what you're testing for my understanding this was an absolute positive hit that this was the firearm that's how it was worded what happened in las vegas i can't tell you i if the gun went back there and it was tested I can't tell you anything about the testing, what the results were, or anything, because I wasn't part of that. You know, I've it's got my curiosity up, absolutely, but I I don't know, so it's hard for me to answer that part of well, it. Well, that's why I said in an earlier episode I'd love to talk to Tim Brennan about that, but as fate well, would yeah, have it, it, it is an interest. It's an interesting thing, but I would suspect Tim Brennan isn't the only one that knew about it. Indeed. Another question, and this relates to a photograph that I sent you. This came from M Theory. Oh, okay. He said that it's a photograph, and he wanted to know if you knew about it or were aware of it. He says it was taken the same night. He said he doesn't believe it was taken by Leonard Jefferson, and Leonard Jefferson is the photographer you spoke with who took the infamous photo of Tupac and Suge. And he said, it looks to me that there was a third passenger at some point on the way to Club 662. Yes, I saw the photo. That's the first time I've seen that photo. I looked at it. I was able to go online and find that photo of Tupac and Suge in the car, you know, that uh, Mr. Jefferson took. And looking at that photo and that photo that this gentleman sent. Or, M. Theory. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's a gentleman. Yeah, M. Theory. It is a gentleman. Okay. Uh, it does appear to me that it was probably taken the same night because it looks like they're both wearing the same clothes in that photo that Mr. Jefferson took. Okay. If, in fact, that was a third person, I'm looking at the photo. It is not taken while they're driving on the Las Vegas Strip, though. Why do you say that? 
if you look at the photo, they aren't on the street because straight ahead is a ramp to another property. I don't know if it's an on-ramp or an exit ramp, but I was looking at that and I'm trying to figure, it's been so long, I don't remember all these hotels back then. But if you look at that picture, straight across is a ramp and it curves to the right when you look at the picture. And it's going up or down depending on the way you look at it. I almost think it'd be a ramp going down because it just, what I saw of it doesn't look safe for some place to turn in. So it makes me think it's a ramp going into another hotel, casino, parking area, whatever. Because you also see two buildings across the street that are like hotels. So they certainly, I can say with absolute certainty, they are not driving on Las Vegas Boulevard because there's nowhere where Las Vegas Boulevard dead ends into a building like that. It runs all the way north, all the way out to Interstate 15, where you get on to go to Utah, and it continues all the way south, way south. Uh, it's just not the strip. That, it's called Las Vegas Boulevard, but they call the strip that section of it where the county's at. So... I, I do believe that photo was taken that night. I'm wondering, I don't know because I wasn't there. I'm wondering if that was a photo taken somewhere from the departure from the Luxor to Suge Knight's house. But do you believe it's authentic? I think it was taken. Not photoshopped. That's just my, no, well, I'm not an expert on that. That would be, that would... Put it this way, I look at the photo, you see the face, it looks like Tupac. He had a, I think he had a nose ring in him or something like that. Or at least that person did. I don't remember if he had one on that night, but he, he's wearing a tank top that looks like the tank top in the, the Jefferson photo. All you see is the shoulder of the driver, which you would assume is Suge Knight. And he's looking back. Well, the... The, well, Tupac is right. looking back. The driver, you can see the shoulder. And I'm assuming that would be Suge Knight because that's who was driving the car. The color pattern on that sleeve looks like the color pattern on the Jefferson photo of Suge Knight sitting over in the driver's seat. So, could there have been someone in the back seat taking that picture from the Luxor to, the, to Suge Knight's house? Possibly. No one's ever said that, but possibly. I am going based on what Frank Alexander said, what the bicycle officers said, and what Suge Knight said, that from Suge Knight's house up till the time of the shooting, there was only Suge Knight and Tupac Shakur in the car. Frank Alexander clearly says that, during his interviews and that he clearly says they were alone when they got pulled over by the bicycle officers and the bicycle officers clearly say they were the only ones in the car and on the drive up to and including the shooting scene at Flamingo and Koval, Suge Knight says it was just the two of them in the car 
The people in the car behind Tupac and Suge Knight say it was just the two of them in the car. And those four girls. I don't remember the names, and I hate, I hate throwing their name out because I think they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. There was only the two of them in the car. So I don't think that... I am satisfied that that photo was not taken during the final drive to the shooting scene. Okay. I, if not the Jefferson photo, if he had taken that photo, you can bet your bottom dollar that would have been something he'd have made, he'd have brought out. And you took the whole roll of film. Yeah, we went just for the one. But yeah, that is certainly a photo I've never seen before. Okay, moving on to Dre, not Dr. Dre. And I remember, actually, if memory serves, we talked about Dr. Dre when when we met 25 years ago. But moving on, Dre says, great podcast. <clears throat> Thank you. And as I was really saying, there are a lot of wonderful, 99.9%, there are wonderful listeners who are really interested in, in everything that you've been able to share so just so you know that's good it's just information that's all and it that, is so. that was my goal not entertainment so not sensationalism if you want a sensational podcast you can find one if you want one with made up stuff you can find one if you want one from someone who said this is what happened and this is this is the only truth you can find that too this is a little bit different so Great podcast. Thank you, Dre. Who was the comedian who said she was offered to see the Tupac case file? Also, is there a link? And do you... Comedian? We talked about the young girl. I believe she was 17, if memory serves, but... Oh, I didn't know she was a comedian. Is he being facetious about the comedian? she's now a comedian. I didn't know that. Special- that was uh, that was the uh, judge and the DA's daughter. Right, and and yes. I intentionally didn't say her name. I was made aware of her, and I saw there was a video. And then actually, I found another one a few weeks later, and I'd actually contacted her. I didn't hear anything back because I, you know, I, I didn't know how she felt about. It. I mean, she's gone on YouTube, and again. Someone sent me a link, and then I found another one on my own. So she's open to it, so I will share her name. I'm always just really, I don't know, my journalism background kicks in. I just want to make sure they're okay. But, again, if she's talked about it a couple of times, her name is Rachel Wolfson. Yeah, that's his, his her dad may still be the district attorney. I don't know if he From is. From what I just looked and up his Facebook page today, he is. He's, he's still the, the Clark County DA, and her mother was a judge. Jackie Glass. And, and she actually had one of them judge TV shows for a while. Indeed. And so also... I don't... And, they, and she was an attorney before she became a judge. In fact, they were both attorneys before they got into their... Public position. That's my understanding. And one other bit of trivia. She presided over the O.J. Simpson trial in 2008, the one involving oh, the yeah. robbery. That, 
Yeah, that's right. You know, I don't remember all this stuff, but that's that's right. And that probably is the one that got her started on the show because it usually takes a notorious case to get attention from people. But I mean, good for her. I remember you telling me and showing me a early video of the daughter. Right. I don't know about any other videos, but I remember that, and I think we discussed it. Right, we did. We we certainly did. That's why the listener is saying because we didn't. I didn't say the name. You. Yeah. Before. I don't. Re- I uh, I remember the video. I was baffled at what the young lady said happened. Me too. <laughs> I wasn't there, so I can't tell you. Uh, I just if. If her story is correct, it just strange is all I can say. <laughs> and just to back it up, she says that she went in to LVMPD HQ one day with her mother, and the mother was talking about some kind of case. And according to Rachel, a detective who was not you, because this happened no. after you were on the case, Basically, basically said to her, hey, would you like to see Tupac's autopsy photo and showed Hmm. it to her. And the reason I brought it up in questioning you is that doesn't give the best image of the investigation if that's how the case file is treated. And again, you were speaking about how you locked up the case file, and this seemed to be like the other end of that spectrum. Yeah, the only people that ever saw any photos out of that were the investigators. I'm sure we shared with certain law enforcement with Compton and LA. And then you got to see some. And the crew. You didn't see, I don't I don't remember if you saw all of them, but you saw some yeah, photos. And the, the, the crew, uh, the, I was with Yeah, there. but that was for the, that was for the show, right. but. No, I don't think anything was actually filmed that no. we were concerned about getting out. No, not at all. And we certainly weren't going to want our photos from the autopsy published, you know. So, yeah, again, that's just a very strange story that I heard. And I'm, and I'm not saying the girl's wrong. I'm just saying, uh, I'm just, it's just strange. <laughs> Yeah, that's, indeed, I found it to be, I would use the word curious. Very curious. Yeah. Yeah, but I, again, I don't have any knowledge of it. I didn't know about it until you showed it to me. And, well, whatever. Everybody has their different ideas on how to do things. So. Yeah, but, I mean, I, I thought it was very inappropriate. But, <clears throat> according to her recollection it was it just seemed inappropriate and disrespectful well from what i remember her talking about it i thought why is this being discussed on a broadcast there was a a youtube video yeah but there were things being said on there that this isn't the venue for this well i guess if there was a venue it would be youtube and yeah but but the venue, the venue I think of is between investigators. Well, okay, I agree with you. I think that it was. I think I question more what was done than question 
that it was discussed. Well, I don't know what the benefit was of it. Because in my mind, in my mind, to allow someone to do or see something, there's got to be a benefit some way, shape, or form. And as far as I could tell, there wasn't any. Well, again, just looking on as an outsider, it looked to me that the the person in question was showing off. Yeah. And you know, look what look. I don't know who I don't know who it was. So. Yeah. You know, look look what I got, but. Okay, moving on, because you you were you were again. I'll clarify. You were not part of the investigative team when it, that happened. When she says no, it happened. No. So this is from someone. I'll just say, we'll call her Rosalina. She says Quincy Jones and his daughter, Kadada, and Jesse Jackson, who actually Tupac uh, performed for long before. He became a rap superstar. But Quincy Jones, his daughter Kadada, and Jesse Jackson and some government politicians have everything to do with Tupac's death. You've heard that. Maybe you haven't heard well, that, heard that na- those names before, but you certainly no, heard I have, variations. I have never I have never heard Quincy Jones and his daughter and Jesse Jackson specifically being accused of something. And uh, I guess you just add this to that list. Uh, well, and the, and some government I, politicians. <laughs> and I should say, Kadada well, was his fiance. Yeah. Quincy Correct. Jones was the father, and Jesse Jackson was there in Las Vegas following Tupac's murder. And as I said, had seen him perform. My understanding is at the Apollo. When he, yeah. he was well, young. First of all, Quincy Jones. Mogul, super mogul. I mean, okay, so his daughter is seeing the guy. I, I guess there's that interest, but there were other ways to, if you were unhappy with the situation, there are other ways to end it than to do something that you could potentially lose everything that that man had to lose. So... Same, same with Jesse Jackson. I mean, whatever your views are on what he talks about or does, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And there was never, I'll say from my involvement in it, there was never anything said to indicate that. And what about the government being involved? Well, the government story is always, there's been government we had government stories involved in this. There's government stories involving everything. Okay. Now, before, and this is from someone I'll identify as DT, before he shot Tupac, he was the main suspect, and this is talking about Orlando Anderson, in the murder okay. of Albert Webb. There may be others. What do you know about the circumstances of the murder of Albert Webb? Is Albert Webb one of the Compton? He's mentioned murders? in the affidavit, indeed. Okay. Well, there's no correlation as far as the Tupac murder. Uh, the only way it really comes up is because of the conversation about the Tupac case. And I think we discussed that there were two murders in Compton where Orlando Anderson was 
identified as the person who did it, but he never got convicted, I guess. I'm, I'm guessing that's where this question's going. And my understanding is that he never was convicted. Correct. I think, again, their information was based on hearsay evidence. Okay. This is from M Theory, it, and it relates to Biggie. So I know you covered okay. the, the Tupac case, but it took me a long time to question whether or not Bad Boy might be more involved, But after, and this is involved in the murder of Biggie, but after hearing about everyone who was at the Vibe Party at the Peterson Museum, South, an example, Southside Crips, Keefe D, and maybe Orlando, definitely Keefe D and Orlando. You also mentioned, he's talking about me, the song Long Kiss Goodbye, which I know you meant goodnight, which I did. But those lyrics, when they get broken down, it's not hard to quench, question Diddy or Big's involvement. And this does relate to Tupac in that this is a song that Biggie did, and we discussed it earlier, the long kiss goodnight in which Biggie says, my team in the Marine Blue, which is Marine Blue would be what Crips would wear. And he says, slugs missed ya, we ain't mad at ya. And I ain't mad at you is a song of Tupac. And also, if you've never heard of, he's talking about a mixtape, which also he, he believes basically fingers Diddy. I asked you about Diddy and his involvement in the Tupac case and Biggie's involvement. Anything you'd like to add? No. I mean, I think we've pretty well addressed it. And my mind, I haven't, I haven't changed my mind on it. People that worked with the case with me haven't ever changed their mind on it. From what I understand of all the other people now involved in different aspects of this through different venues, they, as far as I know, P. Diddy is nowhere involved in their part of it either. Well, so. there is an individual who initially did come out <coughs> saying that no, right. P. Diddy was very involved. So another name that's brought up is Phil Carson. This listener says, I noticed you never brought up Phil Carson, the FBI agent who claimed to have something on Suge and corrupt LAPD in connection with Biggie's murder. Uh, he also passionately refutes someone who used to be with the Los Angeles Police Department, uh, his claims. Uh, and he says, I know the podcast is about Pac's, Pac's murder and Brent's interpretation more than anything but you seem generally interested in uncovering what really happened to Tupac also. Okay. So I, I don't know who Phil Carson, well, if I have, I just don't remember. They say it was a retired FBI agent. You know, I've, I've cer certainly seen articles written about him okay. and his beliefs. I never had any dealing with the gentleman, so I, I don't know. Uh, I can't address anything he's saying about the Los Angeles Police Department because that would be between him and that perspective of it so I I just don't know anything about the man okay now we're gonna get to Orlando the okay. what I, I was calling the <clears throat> usual suspect 
This question is from Jamie. He writes, hey, hi, great work. Absolutely love listening in. I honestly believe it was Keithy D or DeAndre, but I'm leading toward Keithy. There are six eyewitnesses who said the shots came from the front window, that it was a dark skin, thick arm, not lame, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And Keithy D has said enough in statements to string himself up. It's there to see Reed Gaddafi's witness statement, Brent Becker's statement based on his interview with Castro, the four girls. Although I don't believe that I ever found Castro's interview that you did with him that night online, but your response. Well, I think he's basing his deductions on Keefe's confession, because that has become a big deal. You know, I didn't know anything about the confession until we started doing this. You know, and here's my take on this whole thing. Uh, everybody's been focused on the shooter, which I understand, the guy that actually pulled the trigger that killed the man. But you got to remember, there were four people involved in this murder. No one seems to talk about the four. They only talk about the person who did the shooting. There were four people in the car. They're all guilty of what happened that night. I will say this. And this is my opinion that three of them are dead and one's alive. And one of the murderers is making money off of his story. And no one seems to care. So whatever. But that's just that's just my view. And I'm not saying Keefe D squeezed the trigger. I'm not saying Orlando I'm not sitting here telling you Orlando Anderson did it. I'm just saying that there were four people in that car, and if you're truly interested in seeking justice, it's to get all four of them, not just pick and choose. So, but I, I, I do his, his belief. I understand where he's coming from, because I believe we talked about that in an earlier podcast, how yeah, I thought so. Keefe D was just one step shy of confessing to a greater involvement. Now, these questions are very, very similar. Okay. If he thinks it was Orlando, then he's been smeared enough for 23 years, and he's dead anyway. So why wouldn't Becker say Orlando? Seems like he's suggesting it was TPD. Second, very similar question. If he can't say who did the shooting, can he cross off Orlando Anderson? At least he could say that he did not do the shooting. I understand, but he should be able to absolve him. This is from okay. Gerardo. Well, Gerardo wants to know. Again, I guess I'm looking at things differently because the word absolved was used. Or clear him. Yeah, or clear him. Well, the point is whether Orlando Anderson pulled the trigger or Orlando Anderson partook in the murder, he's not absolved either way. But, so See you're, I, 
So what I'm saying is all four people in that car are guilty of, of murdering Tupac Shakur. One happens to be the one that actually pulled the trigger, that actually did the dirty deed. But all four people knew what was going to happen. All four people conspired to do it. And depending on what you believe, at least one other person at least presented the firearm to whomever did the shooting. You lost me there. Well, but... here, I'll put it to you the way the different stories have come out. Out of Keefe D's mouth, anyhow. Because everybody seems to weigh, put the gospel in what Keefe D says, so, so be it. But Keefe D's story has changed once or twice. And if I remember right, at one point, Keefe D actually puts the weapon in his hand. Keefe well, D's hand. All right. And he also says... It one of those four people did the actual shooting, but all four partook in the murder. Think about it. How okay. many how many how many how many times have you heard of a multiple people being involved in the murder of an individual? Oh, okay. or a bank robbery or There whatever. you go. Well, that. the north the North Hollywood bank robbery, you had two bank robbers in there, okay? But in this that's kind of extreme because those guys were both blasted away. So. Right. They were uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, indeed. But I'm saying if you're if you drive to the bank robbery, you're still you're partaking in, a, in the crime, yes. Right. What I, you are saying explicitly Okay oh okay. I see where we're going with this. All right. Go ahead. I'm following up on where you went, not where I'm going. All right. Go ahead. Explicitly, you said the white Cadillac contained the killers. Yes. You've never said that before. Oh, well, I'm not. I guess maybe it wasn't ever asked of me before. I don't know. I've never denied. I've never denied that a white Cadillac was used, okay? To kill Tupac in, in the beginning, there were issues, and I've said, because we had white Cadillac and white Lincoln Town Car. So we, if you remember early on, one of the witnesses described it as a white Lincoln Town Car. And so I had to play that game as far as, well, it can't be both. So right. we had understood. To do, we had to do a process of elimination. I've that never, was in 1996. Yeah, I've I've never denied. Uh, I didn't realize that I was shuffling it that bad. I've never denied that a white Cadillac occupied by individuals killed Tupac Shakur. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah, I I didn't realize it was a secret. I'm sorry. I guess I've never looked at it that way. I've never. In terms of a secret, <laughs> spit it out. In terms of a secret, 
I mean, you've never definitively said that anybody, you, you've never, I mean, I've asked you a lot of questions related mm -hmm. to this case and regarding who was the killer. Okay. And you've never definitively said, I'm the one who had the episode called The Usual Suspect, and you were a little bit like, I've never called him a suspect. Well, about Orlando but we Anderson. were talking about one individual. So if I what, said the what usual I, suspects, Keefe and what Orlando? I'm, what I'm saying is that everybody seems to be focused on one individual. And you've from said my, that before. And from my perspective, there's four individuals. Right. But no one seems to care about the bunch. All they care about is the one. And to me, I says, so you're just going to forgive the others? just to get some other person's name? That's no. what I'm getting at. Yeah. Got you, but knowing who the shooter is is also well, that, a yeah, relevant every, question. Everybody is focused on the shooter. Here's something I'll, I'll say that I've never said before. And it's ja Jamie, I mean, let me just, I don't want to interrupt, oh, okay. but Jamie yeah. does say, I honestly believe it was Keefe D or I remember, DeAndre. I remember him saying that. I the DeAndre Smith angle of it. Well, obviously, I can't say with absolute certainty that he didn't do it. I don't believe DeAndre Smith pulled the trigger. Do I believe DeAndre Smith was in the car? Yes. And. DeAndre is uh, mentioned in that affidavit about Albert Webb. That Orlando I don't, I and don't, yeah, I don't remember all. I don't remember all that other stuff. But that's that's a whole different case, and you'd have to talk to other people about the Webb right. It was out of Compton, but I'm just yeah. saying they were tight. DeAndre Smith is not a stranger to this circle of people. All right, I will say this. And I guess the question hasn't come up. Maybe it will. But I heard this during the Mob Museum interview. They brought their expert witness in, I guess, which I, I have no idea who the gentleman was from L.A. County Sheriff. But Who, who used to be with Compton. <clears throat> yeah. Who well, I, I did contact. I, I don't, did try I, to contact I don't him. think I've ever met him. I don't remember him. But... He did make a statement that either, either he was misinformed or he was intentionally lying, and I don't know which one he's doing. Nobody from Las Vegas talked to Orlando Anderson. You and I have had this conversation before. In fact, I think I've said it on a podcast that I did talk to Orlando Anderson. Yes, you did. One episode. And I think we've talked about a videotape that shows me talking Correct. to her. A, new, a news, yeah. news video. I don't know where that videotape is, but you've even said you've seen it. So I think I used it in one of my stories. So, so the point is, if Mr. Reynolds says nobody from Las Vegas talked to Orlando Anderson, then, then somebody doctored up that video just like, we discussed the MGM video, why my testimony was so important that the video speaks for itself. Well, the video speaks for itself that I talked to Orlando Anderson in the parking lot. All right. And I've never disclosed everything he's ever said. 
Do you want to but now? I, but I will say, I will say this. Orlando Anderson made a comment that day that didn't, it was interesting, but it didn't become a big deal in my mind until after the TPD confession, after hearing that confession. Because remember, I didn't know anything about all this nonsense going on, all these interviews. I didn't know about Keefe D's confession until he did this thing. But I will say that Orlando Anderson said something to me that day, and that now that Keefe D has made the confession, puts that puzzle together. Does it prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Orlando Anderson or Keefe D actually pulled the trigger? No. Can you say what it was? Does it put them possibly present during the time of the shooting? Yes. Going on 26 years after the murder of Tupac Shakur, in spite of the rumors and hearsay, the case has not been solved. No one has ever been charged. No one has been prosecuted. If you have any information about the murder of Tupac Shakur, it's time to share what you know with the Las Vegas Police Department, or you can contact me via TupacMurderPodcast.com. There's no statute of limitations on murder. It's time, far beyond time, for this case to be solved. Next time on the bonus episode of Lennon Ozizre reporting, Tupac's murder was his case. The main course of the conversation was the, the videotape. We were talking about that because that's where I wanted to start with because I figured I'm not going to go charging in. Coming up in just a minute or two, I will spill some tea and implore Tupac fans who are also fans of facts to listen and watch very carefully where you get your facts. But first, let's do the credits. Lena Ozizwe, That's Me, is the host, creator, producer, composer, and artist for Tupac's Murder Was His Case. Lowell T.C. Woundla is the creative director emeritus. Special thanks to Annabelle Vidrio, Joe Mayer, and Clive Kennedy. One listener used a sheep emoji to describe me because I believe that Tupac is dead. My emoji in response was yarn and a knitting needle because I love to knit, and I figured that being a sheep would save money. Mind you, I never went into producing this podcast with the interest of changing anybody's view about whether Tupac was alive or dead. I have simply shared what I saw and heard during my reporting, and Brent has shared what he saw during the investigation. 
The truth is I've had very friendly back and forths with one listener to this day who does believe Tupac is still alive. He's aware of my point of view. He's very civil in the way he presents his. That's why we have been in communication through this year, 2022. As a journalist, my job is to include various points of view in whatever Tupac Shakur is that doing that has engendered personal attacks with one fabulous and one slander monger in particular. Mind you, there's a distinction between having differing opinions and being a fabulist and a slander monger. Different opinions make the world go round. As I said at the top of the podcast, the fabulist and scandalmonger, individual one and number two, remind me of the mean girls I dealt with when I was coming up. I'm not proud to say it, even though I was defending myself. There were times I had to do a beatdown or two. I don't do that anymore. Won't do it anymore. After the beatdowns, I have adhered to my mother's counsel to just the dogs bark. Until now, saying nothing in this case will suggest that it's true. And mind you, those who want to believe will believe, no matter what I say. Okay, first let's dissemble individual one, the fabulist. Fabulist is a fancy way of saying this individual one spouse untruths And the truth is easily verifiable. I heard about the contents of what he said months after he spewed a number of untruths, including one that is libelous. And please note, again, I am thankful for the dear listeners who believed nothing. As for the others who have been believers... Well, all I can say is be very careful where you get your Tupac information from if you actually care about accuracy. Earlier in this podcast, you heard Brent Becker say directly that we've been in contact for 25 years. Even though this individual one claims that I reached out to him to get Brent Becker's contact information. In spite of the fact I'd never even heard of individual one before I started researching this podcast about a year ago. I mean, does that make any sense? Individual one, you're just making stuff up. And if someone takes the time to make stuff up about my little podcast, what else are they making up? And why are they making stuff up? What's the motive? And I'm guessing that saying that I went to you, individual one, makes you the big man. Individual One has also claimed that I have no IMDb credit since 1988. Uh, first of all, what's wrong with that? If Individual One had bothered to see my award-winning documentary, A Father to Die For, he would have a little bit of a clue that I do a lot more with my life than produce stories. In addition... I'm a journalist who also happens to make documentary films. My stories are not all memorialized by IMDb. By the way, that stands for Internet Movie Database. And let's say my last credit was in 1988. 
How does that square with me reporting on Tupac in 1996? Having said all that, with that predicate, I'll say I actually have substantially more IMDb credits than Individual One. Why would he want to highlight his shortcomings, especially when it's so easy to check? All you have to do is use the Google machine, unless you think your followers are sheep, believers who simply accept drivel, hogwash, and claptrap without checking. What would be the motivation for propagating this nonsense? To make you a big man, that is, if it were true. And again, don't take my word for it. Look up all my IMDb credits, and they represent a fraction of what I've actually produced and directed. I will say that producing meaningful and truthful content has always been my priority, not amassing IMDb credits. But again, I'm just stuck wondering, why are you pointing out your shortcomings, your inferiority? Another claim, and I will say that I have not seen this directly, I only looked once at individual one's fabulous fabrications. I mean, just as you'd not hang around a bathroom to hear what mean girls are saying, I'm not about to go to the trough and digest the information that individual one is spewing. But kind sources have said that he's claimed that the reason I produced the podcast was to criticize law enforcement. Okay, let me take that in. Anyone who knows me knows I wouldn't spend one moment unless I was obliged to as part of a job, and I produced this podcast myself, but I wouldn't spend one moment with someone I detested. Just wouldn't happen. That's not an elective. Not sure what the motivation is behind this claim, Again, I have not heard it directly. My experience is that individual one does not seem to have much of a relationship with reality. But not only did I spend hours with former homicide detective Brent Becker, I've also spent hours with law enforcement throughout the United States and the rest of the world. That includes interviews at Scotland Yard about a gold heist, getting a tour of the red light district with two officers in Copenhagen, interviewing countless officers, detectives, sergeants, and police chiefs in 40-plus states in America. And you know, I've also done numerous stories about police accountability. I'm a journalist, not a content creator who just makes up stuff. Getting to that, I did hear a comment directly from individual one that is libelous. I did get an A in my journalism law class at university. Uh, Note that number two. I will keep my response on this one short and sweet. Why would I steal from you? My work is nonfiction. To be as clear as I possibly can, I've never called individual one. I've never texted him. I've never sent him an email. I've never sent him a letter. I've never used a carrier pigeon to reach him. And I've never 
used smoke signals. I've never been tried to be in contact with individual one ever. What would your motivation be to say I took your content individual one? Again, it's a matter of self-aggrandizement. Now on to another self-aggrandizer floating in the cesspool. I'll refer to him henceforth as number two. And as it happens, number two has said many unkind things about individual one and vice versa. I actually contacted number two and invited him to be part of this podcast. The reason I did that is that I wanted to give him an opportunity to respond to what had been revealed in the podcast. And mind you, number two has been vocal for many years about the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department's investigation of Tupac Shakur's murder. You'd have to look very hard to find anything neutral or complimentary. But I wanted to give number two an opportunity to respond. He agreed, and we tried to record a segment last year, but the app I used to record my podcast was not compatible with his device. I did try to make arrangements two other times, but he ghosted me. So I made an effort, and again, he's had plenty of opportunities to speak about his way or the highway. The first time we spoke, I'll tell you, he complimented me on my voice. From the beginning, my take was number two was very condescending. So I was not surprised that after he told me how great my voice was, he told me I got the story wrong when I said sources close to Tupac told me that Orlando Anderson tried to snatch a medallion Tupac was wearing at the MGM Grand the night he was shot. Well, 25 years ago, sources verifiably close to Tupac told me that Orlando Anderson tried to snatch Tupac's chain at the MGM Grand. During this podcast, Brent Becker also told me similar reports had come into Las Vegas Metro. When I reported on my story 25 years ago, I said sources close to Tupac told the story of the snatched medallion. I asked number two why sources would have said that, and his response was that's because of concern that Tupac was out on bail and that snatching the medallion would have put him back in prison. Subsequently, I've heard that number two has indulged in character assassination, which is quite different from disagreeing with me. He questions my intelligence, which seems to be his M.O., but I've got to question this. If the reason that folks close to Tupac told me that why would they say that after he was dead? Number two makes the East Coast, West Coast beef seem anemic. He has more beefs than Mickey D's. I can't think of anyone in the realm of Tupac Shakur content creators that he's not clashed with. It's always my way or the highway. And again, what's the motivation for putting me down and clashing with everyone I can think of in this realm. It's to make himself bigger. I'm five feet ten inches, six feet plus with heels. 
I bet you I got more A's in school than you did, number two. Simon & Schuster published a book I wrote. I've run Emmy, Golden Mike, many other awards. Helped win a James Beard Award. Got A's in classes as diverse as French and journalism. But if pot shotting makes you feel better, bigger, go for it. When it comes to individual number one and number two, I would just as soon not talk about them ever again. Although, if I'm forced to come out again and set the record straight, I won't hesitate. I have said my piece. I've always felt that punting down is a waste of time, just as it was in dealing with mean girls. You'll recall that I said my mother has always said let the dogs bark. There's also this. George Bernard Shaw said, I learned long ago never to wrestle with a pig. You get dirty, and besides, the pig likes it. So unless I'm forced into action, I'm just going to let individual one and number two wrestle each other. In the meantime, take special care of who you believe. I'm not saying limit what you take in, because you need to have a variety of viewpoints. When I initially reported this story, I wanted to hear from everyone possible. Las Vegas Metro Police, the police chief of Compton, sources within De 